colonial. We have to unlearn. Shall we begin? Let's begin now. Somebody ought to do something about that. What would Quay say? Is this the Oppression Olympics? Decolonization. It's the data. The revolution will not be televised because it is starting with infants and toddlers. Welcome to the Early Childhood Buzz Podcast. I'm Penny Smith, and today we're talking about Roe versus Wade being overturned and what that means from a racial equity standpoint. Our guest hosts for this conversation are Atina Danner, Associate Director of Learning and Facilitation, and Veronica Cortez, Associate Director of Policy at Erickson Institute. Ladies, take it away. Thank you, Penny, for having us on the podcast today. Hello, hello. I'm Veronica Cortez, and I am the Associate Director of Policy at Erickson Institute on the Policy and Leadership Team. The lenses that I bring with me today and every day are that of an attorney, a former civil rights litigator working on behalf of marginalized people, a Latina, a Mexicana, a daughter of immigrants, an advocate, a sister, a tia, a wife, a close friend to a group of chingonas, a girl from Cicero, Illinois, that went on to an elite university and somehow survived, a person that is more comfortable in spaces that have some color in them, and someone that is still figuring out her voice in white spaces. Thank you, Veronica. Hello, my name is Atina Danner. I'm the Associate Director of Facilitation and Learning for Erickson's Policy and Leadership Department. Thinking about my lenses, I am a daughter of artists, who worked in nonprofits to feed their six children. And my personal story travels from Atlanta, Georgia, to Flint, Michigan, back south to Georgia, and then north again here to Illinois. I view my world perspective as that of an artist. That includes being an author, singer. I'm an educator and a social movement facilitator. I'm also a person of faith. I'm a parent of Black teenagers. I am a daughter, a sister, an auntie. I'm a cis woman, a queer person, and a plant and pet mom. So that's a bunch of my lenses, <laughs> not all of them. And I'm also a person who benefits from a lot of privileges and also am a descendant of enslaved Africans and sharecroppers who had to deal with creating so much for this land and not getting back, so also lacking many other privileges. So those are some of my complexities. Thanks, Atina, for sharing those. I think I'm going to add one that I just heard from you. I'm mm-hmm. a wannabe plant mom. I'm trying. <laughs> I'm not 100% there yet, I think. Totally get that. <laughs> Today, we are going to talk about the decision the Supreme Court issued in June, overturning, as in getting rid of, Roe v. Wade, the court's majority decided that there was no inherent right to abortion and that each state could and should decide whether or not it would allow abortion. This means abortions are legal or illegal, depending on what state you are in, and many states had laws on their books that would automatically or within 30 days make it illegal to have an abortion. Atina, you and I are in Illinois, and in 2019, we passed the Reproductive Health Act, which created a fundamental right to make decisions over your own body, 
which means that this decision does not affect us or the people around us directly. But it affects so many of the women in all of the states around us because we are kind of an oasis in the middle of a bunch of other states that have these laws on the books. So in some ways, Illinois is now a center point for people that are seeking an abortion and that don't have access in their own state. Atina, what were your initial thoughts or feelings on the day of the decision? I know for me, I was I was crying for all these individuals that lost the right to make decisions over their own bodies. How did you feel? So even now I'm like taking deep breaths as I yeah. hear you yeah, <laughs> talk no. about it. And thank you very much for laying out the, uh, the more legal legislative background of it. I appreciate that lens that you hold that I definitely do not. The day the decision was announced, I was really stunned and not surprised stunned because Honestly, people have been talking about this for years. This is not a surprise for anyone who's paying attention to abortion access rights. Those discussions have been going on, but it was just a visceral internal feeling in my body. And I had to slow down just to process what was happening. It was like the world was like in slow motion for me. I had so much grief and anger. It's such a big move to attempt to remove fundamental rights of bodily autonomy and then hearing about all the different ways that you know there can be cascading domino effects that will connect to other laws and open all these other doors for injustice so that was really hard for me my family was working really hard to take care of me I was watching the press conferences and the news and I'm just standing there you know teary-eyed and my jaws all clenched up So it was a pretty intense day. And then there's some communing with other folks thinking about like, okay, well, what's going to happen now? So there were also moments that could be a little hopeful, but that initial, that morning was a rough morning. Actually, first I want to clarify something because you talked about the laws happening in other states where abortion would change to become illegal. Is that what people are referring to as trigger laws? Yes. That's okay. exactly right. Okay, great. So once the law went over at the federal level, then the states were like, well, if it happens at the federal level, then now we're going to make it happen here. So that triggers that. Right. Those are usually the 30-day ones. Um, gotcha. Some of our states have had laws in place since the 1800s or sometime in the 19th century that became illegal or got prevented when the Supreme Court decision in Roe v. Wade came down. So those have always been on the books and stay on the books. So so those are the two. So there were states that were preparing for this moment, right? Mm -hmm. And said, if Roe v. Wade disappears, we have 30 days and boom, this goes into place. And there were other states that just had this rule in place that got knocked down when Roe v. Wade came down. And then now they just became law again. So it's like approaching it from two different directions. It's so tricky. There's so many laws that we really don't understand or fully know about. And it's really tricky when you start to have to understand these conversations where there's so much background that you already didn't have. And people are like, well, did you think about this and that? And you're like, I have no idea. That's why I asked, because there's so much background that I don't have that I want to be clear about. And there's so much more. We have to think about this, like the laws that that we're using now that we are using to trigger this or not trigger this, they're from 1776 when we were a completely different country, right? When was the constitution written? The the last amendment even, you know, when women didn't have rights at all. 
that is also a context, right? Women didn't have rights. Women of color sure as hell did not have rights. No. So I think those are also We're contexts. not quite people at that point. Right. Right. We weren't exactly. But but we're still using these old laws that were written by old white men with all of the power at that time. I think that's also a context that we need to look at and use today because it is one of the reasons this case came down the way it did because of these archaic laws. Archaic archaic secret laws that we don't even know are happening on the everyday people level. We're just living our lives thinking probably won't get that bad. And then suddenly, boom. (laughs) Probably won't get that bad. Yeah. Yeah. Not everybody can be like, you know, a policy wonk advocate can't be consuming this every day. So I think that's what's so frustrating for the everyday person. It's like, how am I supposed to keep up with all of this? Speaking of keeping up with things, Erickson is a research institution. That's a big part of what we do. I want to talk with you about the kind of data that we have access to that tells us how this can impact children and families. Absolutely. We have some data we want to share today, but I think I need to preface all of that by saying the data that I will share about Illinois today is we're sharing it about a state that has made some considerable investments in early childhood and in children and families Mm -hmm. that other states have not. Mm -hmm. So I want to preface that by saying that if these numbers are not super great, There's so much worse in other states. I think that's an important context. It doesn't mean that all the states are worse. I just mean that some of them are much worse. And our numbers are, and I will put quotation marks around this, relatively good. I'll preface that by saying that. And now I'll move on to a little shameless plug. We have a report that our department at Erickson published in 2021. It's called the Illinois Risk and Reach Report, which provides data on what's happening in Illinois which, mind you, is a state that has actually made a lot of investments in small children and families. So one of the facts that always sticks out to me is the maternal mortality rate. I don't know how much you know about this already. I imagine you know plenty. But the United States ranks last of all developed, and I developed, I know, is a problematic term, last in terms of maternal mortality. And in Illinois, we're at 80 deliveries that end in severe maternal morbidity or death out of every 10,000. You might not think that number is big, but there are other countries that are doing this at a much, much lower rate. So I don't know. Countries who have like less money than the United States, countries that have access to fewer resources and somehow we're still way below in terms of how uh, people who are giving birth are doing. Yes. Again, there's been so many reports about this in the last few years. That number then gets so much worse when we're talking about Black women and women of color. Yes. (laughs) I hate to hear it because, right, that's that's me, you know, mom of two kids having gone through so many of these statistics. And and I also want to clarify, because this took me a while. um, So mortality is like deaths and morbidity is like associated sicknesses. I was well into my adulthood. (laughs) until I understood what that term meant. So I just want to throw it out there for people who might be like me and not know all of the words. So yeah, it's really unfortunate that when when we take a closer look at the data, disaggregate it, pull it apart and look at different individual groups, Black women, Brown women, Indigenous women, and, you know, people giving birth, not just women, lots of different kinds of people giving birth. When we pull the statistics apart, 
things get worse for us on this side of the this side of the neighborhood and that's really unfortunate and so i'm thinking about how we already have this systemic disadvantage in terms of how our outcomes are are doing and then we think about roe versus wade getting overturned and i'm trying to think what are the ways that this impacts so we already had some systemic disadvantages and now we're in a position where okay, I got pregnant. What's going on in my life? Uh, Do I already have several kids that I have to take care of, maybe provide childcare for, healthcare for, in terms of morbidity and mortality? What's happening to my body as I'm going through these different changes? Because, right, I'm hearing a lot in my circles about what can happen to a pregnant person and all of the risks that can happen just going through the pregnancy. And, you know, just a reminder for everyone, abortion access is access to health care. And that's really important. That's a really important thing to remember. And so we have a situation where Black women are dying almost three times the rate of white women. That is a really shameful statistic for the nation that we live in. And I'm thinking about there's so many other ways that these effects can kind of cascade out from the the change in this legislation. Are these states actually pro-children? Are these systems in place pro-children? Right. That is the other thing that just keeps like rising up inside of me as we keep having these conversations, because... I think a lot of people have seen like on Facebook, these we'll adopt your baby kind of memes, which are problematic for a number of reasons that I'm not even going to go into right now. But beyond that, what are we seeing in terms of support provided for families? Because this legislation is going to create more more numerous families. There are going to be more mouths to feed, more people to provide for their basic needs, food, clothing, shelter, well-being. So what is being provided to offset what we know is going to be an increase of the number of people who need their needs met? And I got to tell you, I'm not seeing very much in terms of this is how we can help you. I'm not, what I'm seeing is formula shortage. What I'm seeing is a diminishing workforce, significantly including teachers and care providers of young children. The people who are available to take care of the increasing number of children is going down. I'm not hearing anything about increased salaries to make these fields more attractive so that there's someone to take care of these kids. And maybe people don't know, but if you know about childcare, you know, there are ratios of how many children to how many adults in the room. The number of adults in the room is going down. The number of children in the room is increasing. What is the offset for that? Something somewhere has got to give. What are we offering families and care providers to make up for the change in how supply and demand are relating to each other? I guess another question is, what is it that we need to ask for as a society? You know, what is it that we need from our leaders, our policymakers, people who are trying to get things right in terms of what people need on the day-to-day, what we need to survive 
and then maybe oh, I don't know thrive thriving would be nice it would be great great if we were all thriving <laughs> one Absolutely. of the richest countries <laughs> in the world it would be so cool if we could thrive and again control the ways that we thrive and our access to thriving is that a thing I'm making it up. <laughs> access to thriving is a thing now it is now yeah it is now I like it the way I see it too individuals that have higher incomes most likely white women will continue to have access to safe abortion. Yeah, that's real. And in some ways, that means they will continue to have more control over their own bodies. Mm -hmm. But then what about the women that look like you and I? I was just watching The Janes, which is a documentary on a network of women in the 60s and 70s that helped individuals get abortions. And there's this moment, and I just, it stuck with me so much, where abortion is legalized in the state of New York And they say white, high and middle income women simply started flying to New York if they needed abortions. And this underground network all of a sudden saw an influx of purely low income, mostly women of color that had to continue to use this underground network because they had no choice. Literally. Right. They could not get up and jump on a plane and fly to New York or wherever else. And it feels like that moment. That like 1970s moment where white high income women are flying to New York is being, is just coming back. Right. It's repeated in 2022. But we're the New York now. Right. We're one of very few New Yorks. We're one of a few New Yorks. New York is still around. California is around. It's just this all over again. It feels so backwards. Right. It feels so backwards. And this inequity between those people that have the money, the haves and the have nots. Yeah, basically. And now it's, I have or I have not rights to my own body. Right. And I hope that we can make sure that in terms of access to care, people don't get left behind. I think that's really important. If anything comes out of this, maybe it's an opportunity to make sure everyone has access to the care that they need. I really like something to feel hopeful about in this conversation. (laughs) I have hopes and dreams for this country. And I think, you know, everyone would be very surprised to hear, you know, state legislatures, one person can kind of make a big impact on whether something passes or doesn't pass. You know, one person telling their story mm-hmm. out loud. Think about sharing your story. Think about amplifying someone else's. Right. Absolutely. There's so many stories out there. And there are so many people who are doing that work. They're telling the stories. They're trying to make sure that people have the facts and information. If nothing else, you know, find out who's doing that work and see if you can amplify that. Our stories are so powerful and people learn other people's stories, tap into that. There's so much to be learned. Figure out who is this really impacting where you live and who are the communities that stand to lose the most and how can we show up for them? I really want to encourage people to have solidarity with our trans and non-binary pregnant people because this is happening to them too. So no one left behind is, you know, what I'm hoping for. I think that's hugely important. And I am personally really motivated right now to find out what are all the things that I kind of took for granted. What do I need to know to be able to really help people get what they need in this moment? So that's kind of my charge to myself is get more curious, learn more things about the situation. And I think my charge to whoever is listening is look up who represents you in either your local or federal representatives or Congress people, local or state reps and senators, make sure that they are actually still representative of you. 
that they're actually representing your interest and what you are looking for because and, and what you want. Right. Do it. Get out yes. there. Be involved. Volunteer. Do all of those pieces because we need some change, right? You know, and hopefully there will be change and and we won't be sitting here with ancient laws governing our bodies. And we can move forward and and think about instead, how do we actually serve the babies that live here today? How do we better support the families and children? And instead make those investments. Right. Because it all comes back to the babies eventually. They're all always (laughs) impacted by the things that happen, you know, in the world because they're a part of this. Babies aren't like, you know, on another side of a fence where we can make all these decisions and they're not impacted. They're here with us. So let's take care of the babies and leave no one behind and get in where you fit in. That's my thought. Absolutely. Thank you so much for chatting with me today, Atina. Absolutely. It's been good. Oh, I just want to mention before we go, we're going to have some information about some of the resources that we talked about. So make sure you check out the show notes. Shout out to policy and leadership at Erickson Institute and all our homies on the PNL team. And Uh, thank you, Penny and Christina, for letting us have the mic this week. This has been great. Thank you for this conversation. Thank you. Bye. Bye bye. Thank you for listening to Get on the Early Childhood Bus podcast. We hope you enjoyed our deep dive. 